0: I'm sure the lawyers love that.
1: The lawyers said, you know, eBay and Amazon are like ruthless competitors. They hate each other. But the one thing they would agree on is suing you. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You're listening to Philly Who,
0: the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin. And today in this very special live episode, I'm talking with Josh Koppelman. Josh is the founder of First Round Capital, a seed stage venture capital firm that is headquartered in Philly and was among the first to invest in companies such as Warby Parker, Blue Apron, and Uber. Before First Round, Josh was a co-founder of three Philly startups, including Half.com, which was acquired by eBay. In this episode, we'll hear how Josh and his teams launched these Philly companies in the late 90s and how they had to get creative to put their companies on the map.
1: So after a few hours, he kind of said, you know, If you just want to get on the damn map, why don't you just find a town with half in it and change its name to half.com and then it would be on the map. And there was this laughter, but like, wait, that's not a
0: bad idea. He'll share the story of his transition from startup founder to startup investor and how exciting it was to see first rounds investment companies flourish.
1: The subway station had an ad for Hotel Tonight and the bus had an ad for Blue Apron. And then there was an Uber par- Like It was like as if I came out of the subway in a first round commercial. And we'll talk about how he successfully impacted
0: Silicon Valley for 30 years from right here in Philly. And he'll also share some of the shoulda, coulda, woulda moments.
1: You're talking to the VC who issued the first term sheet for Twitter, but decided not to pay a higher price. I'm lucky I still have a job.
0: All this and more now, live on Philly Who. In 1992, when he was a student at Wharton, Josh co-founded Infonautics Corporation. Four years later, he took it public on the NASDAQ. In July of 1999, Josh founded Half.com and led it to become one of the largest sellers of used books, movies, and music in the world. Half.com was acquired by eBay in July of 2000, one year later. Josh then founded Turntide, an anti-spam company that was acquired by Symantec six months later. After his third successful exit, Josh then founded First Round Capital in 2004 to reinvent seed stage investing. Since then, First Round has invested in over 200 emerging startups, including Uber, Mint, and Blue Apron. Josh was ranked fourth on Forbes' 2015 Midas list of tech investors. He's been EY's Entrepreneur of the Year, and he's an inventor on 13 US patents. And the best part? He's done all of this right here in Philly. Josh, I want to start by hearing about your first entrepreneurial venture which you took on in your hometown of Great Neck, New York when you were four years old. What were you selling? Rocks. You were selling rocks. And what was the market for selling rocks like in 1976?
1: So I, I, I learned several things selling rocks. Um, I didn't have anything else to sell, and I wanted to be in business, so rocks were free, so I thought I would just put rocks in my little red radio flyer wagon and sell them. Uh, The first thing I learned is sales is hard. (laughs) The second thing I learned is the importance of product-market fit. Um, And the third thing I learned was how fortunate and privileged I was because I had friends and family coming out to pay 25 cents, 50 cents and a dollar for ordinary rocks and they were not buying it for the rocks, they were buying it for me. Right, that was your first friend and family (laughs) round.
0: So then after that, when you were seven, you had another entrepreneurial venture and that was Joss's Juices, correct?
1: That's right, I had, uh, I remember my dad, And I go into the hardware store, and we had like you remember Lucy's lemonade stand, that like that design from Peanuts. Like we we had that like picture, and we went and we built the heart. We you know we bought the wood, and we built this this big stand. And I took it over to the tennis courts near my house, and then this mean lady came out and told me that I couldn't sell because I didn't have a permit, and it was illegal to sell, and I was competing with the vending machines that the township owned.
0: Wow, who who would do that
1: to a (laughs) seven-year-old? But you, you then went and filed the permit, correct? I did. Do you I, remember the day when you, as a seven-year-old, stood up and, and applied for a permit to sell <laughs> juice? I, I don't remember the specific day, but the, my, my biggest memory of Josh's juices was how upset I was that my brother was drinking all the profits, because I, a, a, I had a four-year-old brother at the time, and he was my helper, but he just kept drinking all the juice, and like I was losing margin. <laughs>
0: And that's when you learn the value of a solid co-founder. So you can see where all these pieces are coming together early on. Um, now fast forwarding. Today, you invest in entrepreneurs who create their own roadmap. Now, growing up you know, in New York and then eventually coming to Philadelphia to attend Penn, how did you create your own roadmap?
1: Well, I think these are some examples. I mean, when I say create your own roadmap, what I mean is I think society raises conformists. Um, in general, there's sort of a conveyor belt that kids grow up on. Um, and you go from elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school. and high school, you have to take the right tests and you have to do the right extracurriculars to get into the right college, where you have to study, you know, you have to study super hard and get the right internships to get the right job. Like, there's this conveyor belt of conformity. And, and even on a micro level, you show up your first day of class in any university and the teacher gives you a syllabus. And what is that? That's a roadmap for the class. Here's when the tests are, here's when the quizzes are. You don't have to figure out what to read. The professor will tell you everything you need to read. You don't even have to figure out like how score, like what winning looks like because the professor will tell you that, you know, class participation is X percent and assessments are Y percent and homeworks are Z percent. Like you know what winning looks like. But to be a good founder, no one gives you a map. To be a good founder, no one tells you how you're going to be scored, no one tells you what you need to read or what to do. You have to figure that out. And I think society kind of like, like it, it almost creates the opposite. It, it creates such pressure to conform, to follow other people's maps that we just look for, you know, that look for founders. We don't look for good navigators, we look for good cartographers, founders who are really good at creating their own map. Whether that's getting you know selling rocks or getting a permit to you know to sell juice at the tennis court. So did you have that perspective when you know you were attending high school,
0: attending Penn, and, and the syllabus got put in front of you? Did you sort of feel that, I guess, disdain towards the beaten path?
1: No, I don't think it was that clear at the time. I I, I just think I felt a little more comfortable walking against the grain of the conveyor belt. And you don't have to. It, it doesn't take a lot to you know like you know. Did you choose a major or did you build your own major? Do you read books or did you write a book? Do you join a club or do you start a club? Do you get a job or do you start a co- Like there's so many small ways that people have and will continue to have, um, like trying to fight that conveyor belt. And I guess all I'm saying is when I look for, what well, we look for in entrepreneurs is, is, is a history of being comfortable non being a nonconformist, going off the conveyor belt, because it's so tough and so lonely to start a company, that like ideally you've done it, you you, you have experience, even if you've never started a company before, you just have experiences, as as you're know, going against the the grain. Right. So you started your first company while at Penn uh,
0: Infonotics. Now, can you tell us the story of, of how the idea came about? Like at what point were you like, we need to start a company around this?
1: Um, Infonotics, I co-founded uh, during a summer internship, and this was before the consumer internet was around, right? You had dial up services like Prodigy, CompuServe, in America online. But there was no search engine, and sort of my co-founder actually had the idea for Infonautics, which was to build a LexisNexis, a search engine, we didn't know to use the word search engine at the time, for kids. And we built a product called Homework Helper that was on all of the major services. Um, and um, I'd grown up, um, you know, I, I, I was part of the 300 baud club like my first modem was 300 baud where you would see the words the like the letters scrolling across the screen as it loaded and so sort of, I ran a bulletin board in my own house so like it, it was it, it just seemed really right that this would be the way that kids would get information Yeah.
0: So what were your expectations for this product and this company as it got off the ground?
1: I didn't have To make as big of a cost as my co an investment as my co-founder Marvin did. I mean, he mortgaged his house. I I was in a dorm room. I can't mortgage that. Um, So, you know, so for me, it started off as this could be a really interesting learning opportunity, um, and and it just continued to grow.
0: Yeah. So, can you take us through the day that that company went public? How did you feel? What was going through your mind that morning?
1: So, this is going to be an answer that I don't think you expect. You know, like. When you're a private company, you only get valued by appointment. What that means is if you're a private company, your stock only trades when you want it to trade, right? And so when is that? That's typically when good things are happening because that's when you want to sell stock, you take less dilution, it's a higher price. When you're a public company, you trade every, every business day. And so when Infonautics went public, it went out at 14, traded up to 14.25 and never saw that price point again, wow. went down from there. So to some degree, it felt like I was you know, for the first five years of Infonautics' story, we were selling gold, and then the day we went public, maybe we were selling rocks. Um,
0: <laughs> so you were back to your roots at that point.
1: <laughs> so
0: that's, that's curious. So then at what point did you have an idea to start a new company and, and leave this now publicly traded company?
1: So sort of started thinking about half the, the idea for half.com, I think, in 98. I was a big user of... I mean, of, of Amazon, but also of eBay, and, and sort of re- recognized that there was, there, was, there was a gap in between. In fact, the original name for half.com wasn't half.com. It was. Ebazon. We wanted to take the best of eBay <laughs> and the best of Amazon and combine them. I'm sure the lawyers love you know, that. The lawyers said, you know, eBay and Amazon are like ruthless competitors. They hate each other, but the one thing they would agree on is suing you.
0: <laughs> That's great. So you have this idea to start another company now, did you feel any trepidation for leaving your your first company, which I imagine felt like your baby?
1: Yeah, it felt like my baby. I think you know I think that the company was already public it, it, it had already grown um, and, and I think I, I was the junior co-founder in that company um, and i and you know I think there in in most founders there's sort of perpetual insecurity. And I wanted to prove to myself that like this wasn't a fluke of timing. Um, you know that, um, so, so, And I wanted the shot to sort of, to be sitting in the CEO chair rather than the number two seat. Gotcha.
0: So then you launch half.com in July of 1999. Now a lot of internet companies were launching at this point. How were you able
1: to get the word out for half.com? So we, it was hard because in 99, you had people like Pets.com spending three million a month with like TV commercials with their sock puppet. Like getting media exposure was difficult. So we, we tried to do a number of, of, of atypical sort of, you know, what today would be called earned media um, uh, stunts.
0: Mm-hmm. And what would you say was the biggest of those stunts?
1: Probably our launch stunt you know, we were all in the room and, you know, with my head of marketing and the whole marketing team and we were trying to brainstorm, what could we do at launch that would sort of put the company on the map? And we spent hours brainstorming ideas, like, you know, and, you know, that idea, no, that one won't get us on the map, no. So finally, I remember Mark Hughes, who was the head of marketing at the time, said something along the line, he just got so frustrated because like we were shooting down all of the ideas. So after a few hours, he kind of said, you know, if you, if you just want to get on the damn map, why don't you just find a town with half in it and change its name to half.com, and then it would be on the map. And there was this, like, kind of, like, laughter, but, like, wait, that's not a bad idea. So the next day, Mark was on a plane to halfway Oregon, population 345. We figured Half Moon Bay would probably be a little more expensive. And which was a perfect, like, it was a great town because it was a town that was actually formed in the gold rush and then got left behind, and now you had the internet gold rush. So, like, there was, you know, a story. And, um, you know, he went and pitched the mayor, and, uh, you know, a week later, we they had to do a town vote. We were sending interns to go door-to-door to try to lobby all 345 people to approve the name change. And then we launched, and um, and we announced this, and the, the amount of, like, you know... Four minutes on the Today Show, Wall Street Journal, 60 Minutes, New York Times, just you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of free media that came to us. You must have thought, oh my gosh, I can't
0: believe this is actually working.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a little... And it, and it started off as a throwaway line out of frustration. Yeah.
0: So there's a lesson there. When, you, you know, when It's eight hours into the session and somebody makes a joke. Maybe that's the thing that you should chase after, right? So 60 days after this, 60 days after Half.com launched... You got a call from eBay. What did they say on that call?
1: At the time, they just said, "Hey, we'd love to get to know you," um, and we were scared because it was too early. We we didn't want the you know we didn't want the call that early. You know, the company had a great launch, and we'd raised venture capital, and we were growing. So, we we had no plan or desire to sell.
0: Right. So, it was six months later that eBay acquired Half.com. So. Did it take you a while to warm up to that idea?
1: Yeah, it's a dance, you know, I mean, at the same time, keep in mind, like in March, March of 2000 was the all time um, high of the Nasdaq and then like the dot bomb, you know, crater began. So maybe a little after that, we might have been a little more receptive to a sale.
0: Yeah. And and you thought, okay, maybe this is the right move. So you wound up staying in eBay and Your half.com team stayed here in Philadelphia. Did you have to convince eBay to let you guys stay here?
1: Yeah, that was uh, accident. I mean, yes, we did. So um, we're negotiating with eBay. And, you know, I said to my wife, you know, like, there's a chance they're going to spend a lot of money for this company. There's a chance they're going to want us and the company to move to Silicon Valley. And and if that's the case, we're probably going to have to move because um, this is a transformational deal for the company and for us. And she said, that's fine, but just make it, the l- if that's the last point left in the negotiation, like if that is all that's standing between us and the deal, we'll cave, but make that the last point. Right. So we're negotiating back and forth and we, we're down to three points, a point on escrow, a point on price, and this point. And I found this out after the case, um, after one of the, the eBay board members heard a rumor, and I didn't know this at the time, but they heard a rumor that we were negotiating with Amazon. <laughs> so we get a call on a Friday saying, the board wants to vote on this on Monday. We need to lock this up this weekend. Where are we in these three issues? And I said, well, you know, the three issues are the escrow, the price, and Philadelphia. And they, they, they kind of hit, hit the bogey on all three of them and said, are we done? I'm like, Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how come I now, ended up in Philadelphia
0: And you didn't know at that time That they had heard this rumor No, so you I was just like...
1: surprised Like It was like a blanket concession on their part um, On all three parts On all three points
0: And you got to tell your team Hey, we're staying home Hey, we're staying in Philly <laughs> That's great um, So then a few Now, a few years after that You founded Turntide this Co-founded Co-founded Turntide Thank you And this was your third time going after a company. What is going
1: through your head now? You've done it twice. But this was a little different. The first one, I was the number two seat. The second one, Half.com, I was the CEO. And here, I was just chairman. Ah. So it was a different role as well.
0: Okay, and what would you say, looking back, was your favorite part or biggest lesson learned in that role at Turntide?
1: So Turntide was a very, I mean, Turntide was less than a year between when I got involved because um, TurnTide was a spin out of another company, okay. so we saw the Lucinda, the, the 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 founder, the CEO of TurnTide, saw this opportunity to spin a technology out and create a company out of it, and um, it was sold to Semantic very quickly. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was really just a bet on a, on a person, Lucinda, and it worked.
0: So, after this exit, you've had three successful exits. Was there a moment in any of the three where things were tough and, and you felt like? maybe even considered giving up and, and bailing and
1: applying for jobs or something like that? I think at in there was, it was really hard to raise keep in mind, like 1993, raising money for a tech company was very tough. There you know, there just wasn't you know and and you know, I was twenty-two at the time, I was a co-founder, but still like the college dropout raising money venture capital, like wasn't sort of mainstream. It was very edgy, and so I, I did actually interview on campus. You know, when you go to Penn, I was, a, I was a student at Penn, Wharton undergrad, there's such pressure to do banking or consulting, so they have all this on-campus interview. Um, so I did go to career planning and placement and told them I, you know, I was starting a company, um, and uh, I did do some interviewing, um, but, but it was half-hearted. I, my heart was really with the company. The funny part is when I graduated, the, the, the university at the time would send out a survey like two months after graduation because they wanted to know like, all right, how many of our graduates are bankers? How many of our graduates are consultants, are, you know, are doing X, Y, and Z? And as like a founder um, who really wasn't getting paid much or anything at the time, like the only box that kind of fit was unemployed.
0: Oh, man, so you were that checkmark that they didn't want to see, but <laughs> look at it now.
1: Yeah, I was a blemish on on, on Penn stats. <laughs> right. That's great. So
0: it wasn't too long then until you decided to go from being a quarterback or a running back, whatever, a player on the field to the coach. At what point did you have the realization that there was a need for a smaller VC firm?
1: Yeah, it wasn't an easy decision to trade in, as I say it, to trade in my green lightsaber for a red one. Right. Um, you know, I I think a lot of it was just an observation that for the first company it took five million dollars to get the first product chip. We had to build a data center. We had to write every line of code ourselves. Build expensive hardware. The second one took two, half.com took two and a half million. Turn tide took seven hundred and fifty. So like in the in the in the course of my short career, the 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 cost to get to market had come down by an order of magnitude. Wow. And during that same time, venture funds had tripled in size. So so that's a 30x gap in the market. So, so kind of saw just a, an opportunity to bring a venture scale product to, to, to a sort of an angel dominated market.
0: Did you think at that time that you would be able to be as successful as a, a VC investor as you have been as a co-founder?
1: I wasn't sure. Uh, so when I first started, I didn't even commit to doing it full time. It was year to year because I wasn't sure if I'd be good at it, if, if, if uh, I'd enjoy it. I remember we would tell other VCs what we're doing, you know, and their funds were getting larger and larger, and ours—our you know, first fund was a seven million dollar fund, and uh, you know—and we told them what we're doing, and like, like they couldn't have been any more condescending. It's like, oh, that's very cute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you were the disruptor of the disruption industry. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, so then, at what point did you know that you were onto something here? That that first round capital. Mm-hmm. Would be able to become what it has become.
1: There was a moment where I was I was up in New York, and I got out of the subway and like you just see the street and there was a bus driving past the subway station and the subway station had an ad for Hotel Tonight, and the bus had an ad for Blue Apron and then there was an Uber part like it was like as if I got out of like the you know came out of the subway in a first round holiday video like slash commercial. Because like you were just seeing all of your companies unintentionally sort of just surrounding the landscape. And, you know, you kind of realize like, wow, we've really been fortunate to work with some amazing founders. Yeah, that's cool. Because I,
0: in, in speaking with past founders and folks, you know, who, who build things, um, I, a lot of them say that they really never have that moment where they're like, oh, I've made it like this is it. Um, and that some folks make it a point to take a moment and look around and, and see all the cre- amazing things that you've created so no very clear the
1: founders created <laughs> yeah. it.
0: Well, you had a hand i'd say
1: no we we're, were fortunate enough that they chose that they chose to partner with us but i, I definitely recognize that you know the, the important the different role that i that a venture investor is in from a founder in terms of value creation yeah
0: so what's what was the biggest challenge in transitioning from the quarterback to the coach
1: so i think you know, my first few, I'd made a bunch of angel investments before I started uh, first round and pretty much lost all the money I, I invested in them. And I think the, the main reason why was because I would, someone, a, a founder would be talking to me and he or she would be telling me what they wanted to build. And I would not focus on that. So like imagine if someone was coming in and tell, saying, I want to build brownies. Like they would say, these are going to be the best brownies, et cetera. I would ignore that. I would be saying, let's look at the ingredients that they have. They have chocolate. They have whipped cream. They have milk. They have sugar. They shouldn't be making brownies. They should be making chocolate souffle because, man, that chocolate souffle would be like, much better than the brownies. Like, and so, so it, 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 it took a while for me to realize that I wasn't backing someone's ingredients. I was backing their recipe. Um, I had to buy their story, what they wanted to build, not the components of it, because I wasn't going to be the person sitting in the chair. I wasn't going to be in the kitchen making this, So So you know, I, I, I you know, it's, it's kind of a mixed up metaphor, but I, but I, but I had to sort of realize that I was signing on to their vision and their recipe, not what I would do with those ingredients.
0: So let's go back to the moment that you were pitched Uber Cab. So. When you heard that pitch, now at that point it was more of
1: a service that just picked up, like a black car type service, right? That's right. So, so we had first round had backed a company called StumbleUpon, um, which had sold to, also had sold to eBay, and uh, the the co-founder of StumbleUpon, uh, and I was on the board of StumbleUpon. The, co-fou- the, the, the co-founder there tweeted out. Uh, that he was working on this new thing called Ubercab, and fortunately, my partner Rob saw the tweet and just sent an email saying, "All right, I'll bite. What's Ubercab?" So, like, that tweet is a very valuable tweet. Wow. Um, and And uh, you know, and then uh, we brought them in, and I think we were all excited. Like, I've, when I look back at like the voting data, like we all voted yes, but I don't think any of us had under any sense. Uh, I think I I <laughs> I think it would be revisionist history um and and you know there'd be a lot of confirmation bias by saying we knew it at the time oh you couldn't have nobody knew that (laughs) um
0: was there a moment then where you kind of like i guess that moment while you walked out of the subway where you realized how ubiquitous and game-changing uber had become
1: yeah i mean i think you just you know you just saw that company take off and it and it grew so fast so quickly um you know i'd been involved in 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 as an investor or, or as a founder in many successful companies, but nothing like that. Yeah.
0: So what so far in the investment game has, your, has been your biggest shoulda, coulda, woulda moment?
1: <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're talking to the VC who issued the first term sheet for Twitter, but decided not to pay a higher price. You're talking to the VC who issued the first term sheet for Dropbox, but decided to not pay the highest price. You're talking to someone who had the first look at Zynga, but decided not to even issue a term sheet. Um, yeah, I'm lucky I still have a job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. What would you say is
1: a common misconception about you? Huh. Um, I'm an extreme introvert, and I'm not sure people realize that, Like, because like, you know, I, I picked a crappy job to be an introvert my, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm supposed to spend all day meeting people. Um, um, and I, you know, and and I don't, you know, like I have a partner, Chris Freilich. He's the most extreme extrovert, right? We go to TED or a conference and he is, you know, he'll go from session to session, meeting to meeting, close down the bars, like, you know, I've met everyone. And for me, come 6 p.m., I am just drained. Done. So, yeah, so I, I don't think people realize um, you know, how hard um, I have to work to uh, overcome my introversion.
0: Right, right. Well, it's even more meaningful that you're here with us here today. Um, If you could send a message to yourself in the past, whether, you know, when you're selling rocks, when you're uh, at Wharton, one of your companies, or within first round, butterfly effect aside,
1: what would you say? So I'd probably go back. I mean, overall, I I have very few regrets. Um... I've lived, I, I believe that most successful entrepreneurs are experts at tolerance of deferred gratification. Like the, the, the exercise of entrepreneurship, of founding a company, is the ultimate expression of deferred gratification. You're not gonna take a higher paying job, you're not gonna take security today because you're willing to invest it and take, take pain today in order for maybe the potential of something in the future. Um, And so I I, I think I practiced that pretty meaningfully. Um, And if I had to go back, like I think, you know, so, you know, when I, maybe it's rationalization, I could justify a lot of the things I did um, in terms of sort of being very focused. But I, I, I guess I would say that even with the need to take deferred gratification, sort of some of my biggest regrets were that I was so focused on either work or family, that I did not spend enough time with friends. I, I really just made the trade-off to, to sort of be a bad friend, unfortunately, in order to focus on, you know, I prioritized ruthlessly and that was the consequence. I mean, you know, I like, when, you, when you ask that question, the, one of uh, our board members and an early mentor in my career was a gentleman named Israel Melman and he was a board member of Infonautics. And we grew apart and didn't really keep in touch. And then I remember hearing while I was in the middle of half.com that he had passed. And I didn't go to that funeral because I was too busy. And like 15 years later, 20 years later, like that still is one of my top regrets. Um, You know, I just feel like, um, yes, there's something about deferred gratification, but there's also something about remaining grounded
0: right taking advantage of the relationships that you have yep. i struggle with that myself just recently going into full-time entrepreneurship um how do you balance right i want to have friends i want to see my family i want to have incredible success i want to have fun i want to but you do have to prioritize and i guess what you're saying is don't always make your relationships the lowest priority
1: yeah i think i think I, looking back i would have i would have been a better friend to people
0: now, is that the advice that you would give if you could give one piece of advice to, you know, early stage founders uh, going into a new venture?
1: Well, I think everyone has a different scale on, on, how they, on how they choose to invest their time and what their prioritizations are. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to impose my value judgments or my prioritizations right. on them. Right.
0: So can you tell us about the Philadelphia that you started your first company in?
1: Yeah, so I I'm, I'm not a Philly native. I came to Philly, I moved to Philly in 1989 for college. So I spent like two-thirds of my life here in Philly, but um, it was a very different town. I mean, um, when I came in 1989, it was almost as if like the slogan to outside, like it was so, Philly was so insular, insular, Philly was so insecure and defensive. It was almost as if you could like see people wearing a t-shirt saying, Philly, like we suck and we don't like you. <laughs> um you know, I mean, like it was just not accommodating and not open and and uh, you know very defensive. So then, what made you stay here all that time? Um, so a little bit of an accident, right? I graduated college, and Infonautics had twenty employees, and they had husbands and wives and mortgages and kids in school, and I had no ties. So it just it just made sense. And then obviously, you grow roots, and you 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 get attached to institutions, to things, to companies, to people.
0: Yeah, so would you say that, that you, I mean, we talked about how uh, with eBay, you kind of accidentally got to stay here. Did you have any moments where you said to yourself, I need to get out of here, I need to go to San Francisco or New York or something like that?
1: I'd be lying if I said no. Um, yeah, I mean, there were plenty of times. When I started first round, I, you know, as a venture firm, We'd love to invest more in Philadelphia, but the majority of our investments are not. The majority of our investments are on the West Coast. So knowing that I was building a venture firm where the majority of our opportunities would be 3,000 plus miles away, I, I knew I was, I was sub-optimizing on a business decision because I was, that was not the only variable that I was solving for at that time. Right.
0: Uh, in, so today in Philadelphia, in the startup world, what is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia?
1: So I think it's not unique to Philadelphia. You know, at first round, we see companies, we, we invest all, all over the country, at least domestically. We don't do much internationally. And and what we've seen is an amazing democratization of entrepreneurship. So it used to be that you know entrepreneurship was such an apprentice business that it was really hard to, to get in. And just like... The amount of resources that are shared, I think First Round tries to share some on First Round Review, but why Combinator, Hacker News, like there's so much information out there that it's never been easier. It's not easy, but it's never been easier to be a first-time founder and to learn. Um, and that could happen, and that, that's enabled some great founders to start great companies in in many cities, whether it's Austin, Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Raleigh, Chicago, you know, like you're seeing these, these, this, this great, res- Resurgence of distributed entrepreneur. What Steve Case talks about is the rise of the rest. I think that the real challenge is not the first 20 employees, because the first 20 of employees at almost any startup they're Swiss Army knives. You need generalists, um, right? In the morning they're a toothpick, in the afternoon they're a scissor, and the you know late afternoon they're they're a knife. They have to do so many different things. Um, but you know once you get above 50 people, that's when you tend to need to hire specialists. That's when like. The little flimsy scissor is not as good as a specialist scissor. The little pocket knife knife is not as good as a regular knife and so on. And that's when all of these cities, Philadelphia included, just have a real hard time um, where you finding that enterprise SaaS chief revenue officer who's done it over and over and over and over again. And that's where it gets really challenging. Right. Like that's the point.
0: Any advice for a company who's kind of getting to that point now, wants to stay in Philadelphia
1: but is facing that challenge? Yeah, so I I, I mean a um, we see it all the time I guess a few things is you have to be willing to accept whether you know there are companies that have that have accepted people that would commute there are some people that have chosen to set up you know if they're looking for a chief revenue officer can they open up their 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 sales office in New York um, if they're having a hard time finding engineering talent do they set up a remote engineering office so they could keep they could grow in two sit in you know, I look at Monetate, they did that uh, with, with both Philadelphia and San Francisco. Curulate uh, did that with uh, Philadelphia and I believe Seattle. And, and like, so you're, you're seeing companies that kind of create, like, um, that are able to continue to grow in Philadelphia, but also are able to find some of those specialists. And extra. you did that with First Round, right? First Round has a San Francisco office? Yeah, we have more people. We have two to three times the number of people in San Francisco wow. than we do here. That's great. So then, what
0: excites you the most about today's Philadelphia?
1: Gritty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we tried to have Gritty on for a live show, but we didn't think that would be very interesting because he doesn't talk, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think when you compare the city today to the city I came to, right? Like, it's different. I think it's different when you're born here because you just, like, just kind of say, all right, it's Philly, but like, I, I, I remember the Philly I chose to come to in 89, and I remember Philly today. And it's much more opening and welcoming, and much more, um, much less defensive. Um, you know, much less focused on the Rocky cheesesteak, Liberty Bell like vibe, and 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 realizing the diversity of of resources, the diversity of talent, the diversity of people. Just like it's a, um, it's really coming into its own as a city. Yeah.
0: Finally, if you could get one message to every Philadelphian, even those outside of the beautiful startup community, whether it's you know, a tweet, an email, a plane in the sky, whatever it is, every Philadelphian could receive and ponder this message. What would you
1: say? So I'd say the following. I'd say, look, Philadelphia is fortunate to have great universities here. And without those universities, Philadelphia would not be where it is today. Philadelphia is fortunate to have amazing hospitals chop is a, is a gem in our backyard and without chop Philadelphia wouldn't be where it is today. Uh, Philadelphia has great museums from the, the art Museum and the barns and, and you know the orchestra and the like all of those institutions are really important to Philadelphia and they make the city a large, they contribute to the city um, I'd also argue that Philadelphia is really fortunate to have a local nonprofit, owned newspaper with 250 people in their newsroom who are creating amazing content doing public service journalism um, cr- you know providing sort of you know watchdogs and eyes and creating accountability and, and helping and, and and Philadelphia would be such a, a a worse city just like it would be without the art museum and what would be without the barns if there wasn't an independent investigative public service, newspaper and it's one of the reasons why I became chairman of the Philadelphia Inquirer so I would I guess if I had one thing to ask it would be why don't you pay to subscribe to the Philadelphia Inquirer
0: (laughs) well there you go I think we can all ponder that and leave it at that Josh thank you so much for being on the show
1: thanks for having me (laughs)
0: For more on Josh and First Round Capital, you can head to podfillyhoo.com forward slash Josh K or check out the show notes. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give a rating if you're on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter at podphillywho and on Instagram at phillywho. Philly Who is a Q9 production. A very special thanks to Jacqueline, Aaron, Kira, and the Philly Startup Leaders team for hosting this live episode as a part of PSL's annual Founder Factory Conference. And to Swift and Taylor for being great sound technicians. Music was by Lee Rosevear with artwork by Lauren Carhart. My name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next week.